Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 34, The House That Joseph Built. Well, for a podcast that is meant to be spending its time in the 19th century, I do tend to stray outside that time zone. Also, I specify in the title no less, it's the Victorian era, ergo the United Kingdom. So I know you're about to ask, Heath, what are you doing having your podcast in France in the 1700s? You're up for false advertising. To which I say, give me a paragraph, I'll be quick. With the French Revolution of 1789-98 taking place, a prominent French politician wanted to celebrate the advancement of their society, bring them together and showcase some of the technological marvels of their country. The politician's name was Francois de Neufchâteau, which translates as Frank of Newcastle. And making an incredibly old reference here, I have to say that Eddie Murphy was right at how everything does sound better in French. Moving on from that though, between 1798 and 1849, Paris held a series of expositions and probably one of the most prominent of these was the French Industrial Exhibition of 1844. This really showcased their place as an industrial world leader. And there was someone else who was interested in being seen as a modern, industrialised country. And that was Prince Albert of Saxe, Coburg and Gotha, aka husband of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. I know I haven't covered much on him yet. In fact, when I think about it, I think I've barely even mentioned him. But I've always kind of admired the changes he brought into Victorian society, ones that I still enjoy to this day. Christmas is my favourite time of the year and the traditional trope I still love, even living here in Australia, is having a pine tree in the home at Christmas. That's a tradition started by the Queen's consort, no less. Prince Albert was always a staunch supporter, not only of his wife, but of the kingdom he had come into. He, along with others in British industry, saw the possibility in showcasing British industrialisation to the world and, let's face it, having royal patronage never hurt anyone. Sir Henry Cole was one of those men that saw this possibility, and as the French expositions continued through the 1840s, men such as Prince Albert and Henry Cole saw that it would be an effective promotion for British industry. Henry's knighthood comes later. The man who created the world's first commercial Christmas card, and will have to have a podcast of his own at some time, was a real advocate of promoting British industry. Prince Albert, Henry Cole and members of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, and as an aside try and fit that on a business card, well they got together and in classic English one-upmanship sought to show up the French. With the Queen's husband backing the idea, you just know it was going to get the go-ahead. I should also add here that Henry Cole's role really cannot be overstated, 
and it's long been thought that he should have gotten more credit than he did. The plan was to have the exhibition self-financing, which was important. People were struggling to eat during the middle of the 19th century, and the last thing they wanted to do was have their taxes paid towards some exalted event that they would probably never get to see. With the idea now being known to the public, and that they wouldn't be paying for it, the concept of having a huge celebration of products and technology from all over the world really started to catch on. So it was decided to hold the exhibition in Hyde Park, in the centre of London. This enormous park was created in 1536 by Henry VIII. He wanted it for his personal hunting grounds. So he kicked out the monks from Westminster Abbey off the property, uh, making it so because he was king. Kensington Palace is also on these grounds. Now, this was the childhood home of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, and she only left it at age 18 because she became the Queen in 1837. So with the land decided upon, the next challenge was to have a venue. The commission in charge of the event had their own ideas of what might work, but nevertheless they accepted submissions from the public. The area to be covered was around 700,000 square feet, so it was a huge building. Over 200 submissions were received in the tender process, and then the commission rejected them all in a classic case of, we got this, thanks anyway. The commission's idea was pretty much hated by everyone, as ugly, and as it turns out, horrendously expensive at around £150,000. 150 grand, you say? Well, that's chump change. Not really. That works out to being around about 22 million pounds in today's money. Or 50 million Australian. Or if you're one of the listeners from those rebellious colonies, it's about 27 million dollars US. So it was serious cash, and I'm sure you can understand why people got a little uppity about spending that sort of money on an apparently self funding exhibition. And then along came one Joseph Paxton. Born in 1803, he was the seventh son in his family. And if you're a Terry Pratchett fan, well, he missed out on being a wizard by one birth. But anyway, Joseph is someone who I really liked reading about. He must have had a passion for gardening and horticulture, because he lied about his age, claiming he was born in 1801, and thus gaining his enrolment at Chuswick Gardens in 1815. Now, if you were into plants and landscaping, this was the place to be. It was the Ivy League of horticultural centres in the kingdom, and Joseph had the skills to make the most of this. He moved about in positions increasing his skills and showcasing his talent, which came to the attention of someone who lived nearby Chuswick House. That someone was William Cavendish, the 6th Duke of Devonshire. Because having peerage like your work hurt you never. Cavendish met with Joseph and was clearly impressed with his skill and enthusiasm and offered him the job of head gardener. So at the age of 20, Joseph had been offered to take over what was regarded as one of the finest gardens in all of England. It gives you an idea of just how good he was. Now, by his own report, 
So we take this with a grain of salt. Joseph made his way to the estate and arrived at around four in the morning. He apparently scaled the wall, then looked through all the gardens, met the staff, had breakfast with the housekeeper, and more importantly, met her niece. I say more importantly because it was only a few years later in 1827 that Joseph married said niece, one Sarah Bowne. The phrase that behind every great man is a great woman holds true here. She was clearly sharp as a tack and took care of all his personal matters, allowing him to pursue his dreams. Oh, I'm thinking Joseph must have been a really likeable guy. With Sarah taking care of everything on the home front, it should be noted that William Cavendish, his grace the Duke, had an excellent relationship with Joseph too and also recognised his talents and let him fly. It sounds weird these days to see someone supported by those around them rather than cutting them down, doesn't it? Anyway, dealing with a mature garden such as the Duke owned, Joseph showed his brilliance in that he became really skilled at moving large trees and other objects in the gardens. And I'd like to point out at this stage that we do need to remember that back then there was no heavy machinery. It was all about being as smart as you could be and heavy lifting. And Joseph was the guy who moved the Emperor Fountain. Long story short, in 1844 he moved something that was twice the height of Nelson's column, you know, that big statue in Trafalgar Square, as well as creating a lake to feed it and moving about 100,000 cubic yards of soil. I'm getting a little bit off track here, but origin stories are always fun for me. So Joseph has mad garden skills and can think outside the box. He develops a real interest in greenhouses, or as they were also known, glass houses. I want to give a quick shout out to Owen and Carrie and the Victorian Periodical Podcast, because I know you both know where this is going, <laughs> but moving on. Applying his considerable talent, Joseph designed these beautiful glass houses. This was including one that managed to gain a flowering Victoria Regia lily in 1849. The lily had been gifted to Her Majesty from the Amazon back in 1836 and had never flowered in the less than hospitable conditions. And yet, thanks to his brilliant design, he managed to achieve this botanical feat. And you have to love someone that has massive funds and enjoys spending it. The Duke had a personal architect, Decimus Burton, awesome name by the way, who designed what became known as the Great Conservatory. Imagine having your own personal architect. I love that idea. Once constructed, it was the largest building in the world. Eight boilers and 11 kilometres of piping kept it warm. When Her Majesty was driven through it to show it to her, the building was lit with 12,000 lamps. I know you agree that's awesome, but it was unfortunately massively expensive to run and it was demolished in the 1920s. Damn it. So anyway, the conservatory was built in 1836 and you can guarantee... Joseph was paying attention. Because in 1848, Paxton built a glass house that was over a hundred metres long and two metres wide. 
Known as the conservative wall, it was here that Joseph was honing his architectural skills and more importantly, his material skills. Because Joseph was pioneering prefabricated glassmaking as well as structural techniques with iron, and when it came around to taking tenders for the new exhibition building, well, Joseph Paxton was a man with a plan. Well, a doodle done during a meeting, anyway. commission in charge of organising their infrastructure was starting to panic a little. It was 1850 and people weren't overly happy about their lovely Hyde Park being messed up, regardless of the reason. On top of this, the 245 submissions received weren't actually that great. In fact, only two of them were met with any real enthusiasm and neither could be built in time and would be too permanent. And by this time, Joseph was a director of the Midland Railway, and while in London to meet MP and Railway Chairman John Ellis, Joseph mentioned he had some ideas for the exhibition building. Ellis encouraged his friend to put together some of these ideas, but as the time was running short, he needed to submit something within the next nine days. But Joseph was a busy man and had a lot of meetings to attend to in the next few days. It is reported, though, that during a board meeting in Derby, he spent more time doodling on a piece of blotting paper than paying attention to what was going on. By the end of that meeting, he held up what he'd been doing. It was a sketch, influenced by his earlier work on the Victoria Regia house. You remember the one where the lily grew. I knew you were keeping up. The people there in the room were looking at the first imagery of what would become known to history as the Crystal Palace. And believe it or not, that very sketch still exists to this day. You can go and see it at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. So if you get the chance to do so, take the time to have a look. Now from that sketch, Paxton created a full design and presented it to the commission in charge. They were actually pushing forward with the pre-planning on another design though, and weren't really into trying to do any, you know, actual quality work with a well-thought-out idea that would come in at less than half the price. So, instead of taking his bat and ball and going home, Joseph had the design published in the Illustrated London News. Oh, and how the people loved it. This was cutting-edge technology at the time. Modular fabrication was the order of the day, and with the use of a speedy glazing process, the builders were able to assemble the new building quickly and easily. The on-flow effect of this style of construction was that it would be simple and easy to disassemble later on, something that was a priority for the organisers as they needed to return Hyde Park back to how it had been before the exhibition. Even though this was an era of innovation, the building was seen as being suspect by rival architects. 
they saw it as being too unsafe and that the sheer volume of crowds through the building would cause it to collapse. So a test was conducted on a model of the building. Then workmen would walk through it, testing the strength of the structure. They even jumped about in an attempt to make something happen. It held up without a problem, and so they even brought army troops in to march around to try and have something happen. Again, the building withstood the test, and thus building then proceeded onto the real thing. And given that it was basically glass all over, the structure was given the name The Crystal Palace. Because hey, a little marketing of a nickname never hurt. The main building was 1,848 feet long, 408 feet wide, and enclosed around 19 acres. With 4,000 tonnes of iron, 90,000 square feet of glass, there were 202 miles of sash bars that held it all together. Incredibly, the Crystal Palace was built on time and on budget. I don't know who ever heard of that. And then there's the next crazy thing. Because the ticket pre-sales, no doubt helped by the media surrounding the building of the Crystal Palace, meant that the exhibition was already in profit before it opened on the 1st of May 1851. So some background here, I'm currently doing postgraduate study in project management and at uni all I do is look at train wreck cases from around the world that you should pay attention to learn what not to do and that includes the Sydney Opera House. I'm sure you've all seen it but the background to it is an expensive exercise in wasting money so finding a major project that actually came in on time and is already making a profit is like finding a clear day in Victoria era London just doesn't happen. <laughs> anyway, the exhibition showcased all manner of things from around the empire and the rest of the world. The legendary and currently controversial diamond the Koh-i-Noor was on display. It's part of the crown jewels and coming in at 105 carats, it was one of the more popular exhibits. The world's first voting machine was shown during the exhibition as was Frederick Bakewell's new invention that was basically an early version of what we now call a fax machine. The latest technology in telescopes was on display, along with equipment that would aid in land surveying and single cast iron frames for pianos, highlighting the technological skill of the kingdom. Pottery, perfumes, firearms, hydraulic machines and furniture were all on display, Pretty much, if you could make it, you could find it here. And while the exhibitions showcased some amazing advancements in an era that was always looking forward, outside the Crystal Palace another invention was making itself known. Because the Great Exhibition was the first time that pay toilets were installed. Apparently over 800,000 people took advantage of the convenience of having a loo right there and they all paid a penny to make use of the toilets. And spending a penny became a euphemism for going to the toilet. Awards were given to the exhibitors for a variety of categories. Now, this caused a minor scandal because the biggest winner of said awards were the French. <laughs> And I'm sure you can imagine how that went down with the Victorian era newspapers. The exhibition ran from May the 1st through until October the 15th. 
Uh, to visit in the first week, it cost you a full pound, but thereafter, for the rest of the first month, it was down to five shillings. These prices meant that only the rich were visiting, but by the end of May, the price was reduced to just a shilling, meaning that pretty much everyone could visit. And visit they did. They had over 17,000 exhibitors, and with the affordable price, more than six million people visited the exhibition, making it an incredible success. It really highlighted the industrial, forward-thinking focus of the United Kingdom in the Victorian era. As I mentioned before, the exhibition did turn a profit, and the money was used to purchase land in the area of Kensington in London. Museums were built there one of which would later evolve into the aforementioned Victoria and Albert Museum. It's now the biggest museum in the world devoted to decorative arts and design. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of the main factors of the design was that it could be deconstructed and removed from Hyde Park. So what happened to the Crystal Palace? Well, it was an incredible achievement in its own right, and after the exhibition finished, the palace was dismantled and reassembled in Sydenham Hill in South London, albeit modified for the new location, with it being elevated and expanded somewhat. It was finished this time in 1854, and yet again Queen Victoria opened it to the public in front of 40,000 people. It continued being a tourist attraction for many years, with concerts and other entertainments appearing there, including Christmas pantomimes. Shout out to my fellow historical Aussies, in 1873 we got to host an exhibition of fruit and other materials from here, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. The programs were regularly released to let people know what was coming up and a bit of trivia, Charles Dickens Jr, along with his father-in-law, owned the printing company that made the pamphlets. The world's first aeronautical exhibition was shown at the Crystal Palace in 1868 and more importantly... In 1871, the world's first cat show was held here. And if you see my Instagram, well, you know I have a cat, who has grown considerably, but is still really, really ridiculously good looking. And sliding outside the 19th century, it was here in 1909 that Lieutenant General Robert Stevenson Smith Baden-Powell, the first Baron Baden-Powell, attended a meeting of the group he founded. I'm sure some of you already know that the Baron was the man who founded the Boy Scouts. Well, it was while he was at the Crystal Palace that he saw the interest many girls were taking in scouting. And from that, with the help of his sister Agnes, he created the Girl Guides. During the First World War, it was used as a naval training base and then it became the first Imperial War Museum. And as an aside, the Imperial War Museum would later move to the site of the Bethlehem Museum, also known as Bedlam, which was back on episode 4. Sadly though, the Crystal Palace was an expensive proposition to maintain, and it slowly fell into decline. And on the night of November 30th in 1936, the building caught fire. 89 fire engines and 400 firemen attempted to stop the blaze, but nothing could be done. Wooden flooring and flammable materials saw to it that the Crystal Palace burnt to the ground. Reportedly, a hundred thousand people saw it burn, including Winston Churchill, who said that this was, quote, the end of an age, end quote. 
The cost to rebuild the palace was regarded as too expensive and so the Crystal Palace never rose again. But the area was to be, always be influenced by having the Crystal Palace there and the name stuck. To this day we have Crystal Palace FC in the UK Football League. The cause of the fire was never established. However, John Logie Baird was an early pioneer of television and created the world's first working television system in 1926. He also created the world's first colour television set. Much of his work, experiments and research had been conducted in the Crystal Palace and he believed that the fire may have been set deliberately by competitors to delay his research. So there's the conspiracy theory for you. And the trivia? Well, here in Australia, the TV awards that we have annually are named for the trophy the actors receive. The Logies. Just a quick shout out again to the Victorian Periodical Parade via their Twitter and their podcast. They were asking about the Crystal Palace. I had actually planned to do the Great Expo at some point, and I've always been curious about the Crystal Palace. So I went down a few rabbit holes. Had a lot of fun doing it, so thank you very much for this suggestion. Really enjoyed doing it. And here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslab.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great, at VicGasLamp, and more importantly on Instagram, where I post history facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. And I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that, and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.